Hey everyone, Jeremy L. Jones here, author of Ruins of Empire. Loving the podcast? Want more from the Ruins of Empire universe? Want the latest updates about this and the other projects I'm working on? Well, you can go to www.sagaofinsanity.com and check out chapter-by-chapter author commentary, book reviews, and just random madness from the mind of Jeremy L. Jones. Just a warning, he's not quite right in the head. You are listening to Ruins of Empire, Templum Veneris, book two of the Ruins of Empire Project, a serial podcast novel by Jeremy L. Jones, read by the author. Chapter 14 At the height of the purges, as dictators often do, Adriana built an organization of fanatical followers to enforce her will. Dubbed Braxafogo, or Fire Witches in English, This female-led coalition became equal parts secret police and paramilitary force. Platoons of these hardliners raided businesses believed to bow to foreign influence and harassed ordinary citizens that dared speak out against Adriana and her regime. On a social media post gone viral, one tourist lamented, You used to walk the beaches of Rio and see hundreds of beautiful women in the sun. Now, women here dress head-to-toe in dark green military uniforms and demand fingerprint identification. From The Fall, The Decline and Failure of 21st Century Civilization by Martin Raff. Althea peeked around the corner to see the Arain Ha and her entourage turn off the main road and head up the side of the mountain. She sighed and leaned back against the white wall that formed one side of the alleyway. She had managed to pilfer an occulto robe hanging on a line a few houses behind her, but it wasn't quite long enough. There was the chance that someone might catch a glimpse of her black boots, and the way the heavy brown fabric fell over her medical regulator looked odd. Also, if she wasn't careful, the screen of her Eros computer peeked out from under her sleeve, but it would do. Aware that she had not seen a great deal of red hair in her short time on Cytheria, she pulled hers back, and tucked it deep in the hood, which she slid over her head, covering as much of her face as possible. She took a quick evaluation of her disguise, such as it was, and then, after one more peek, slipped out into the slow march of occulto workers. She headed in the direction she last saw the Arenha traveling, moving through the crowd at a faster pace, eliciting some grunts and odd looks from others, but she soon caught up with the back of the entourage, just another faceless person among the many. The Arenha stopped in front of one of the large estates. She spoke a few words to her soldiers and then went in. Althea circled the house, keeping out of sight. Flowering bushes, trees, small fountains, and all the other trappings of a peaceful garden surrounded the large villa, providing a quiet haven away from the urban chaos outside. She moved along the wall, pushing her way through the foliage as necessary to check the windows. The first window looked into an empty bedroom. So did the second. Althea worked her way along a great deal of the outside before she finally found a view that at least let her peek into an open common area beyond. The window itself looked into a kitchen, but standing on a rock and lifting herself up, she could just make out what was going on in the center of the building. She noticed a large group of women, and among them, the Arenha. Althea grunted as she lifted herself higher to try and see more. One particular woman, who appeared to be standing above the crowd, held everyone's attention. She was held in place by a few of the citizen women and a culto. The woman gritted her teeth, winced, and then cried out in pain. 
Althea let herself down for a moment to rest her arms, and then lifted herself up again. This time one of the women had moved, and Althea could see the one in the center was pregnant, and, by the look of agony, it was likely that she was going into labor if she wasn't deep in it already. The crunch of gravel on the steps, and a rustle of leaves, indicated someone was coming. Althea let herself down, bowed her head, and started to casually walk away from the noise. Fosse! Akoto! Pare! said a voice behind her. Althea was keenly aware that this person was trying to get her attention, but she picked up the pace and kept moving. Akoto! Pare! called the woman's voice again. It wasn't the Arenha, at least. Althea was reasonably certain of that. However, it wasn't someone that Althea wanted to talk to either, so she kept her head down and sped up, hoping to find an opening to the street and make a getaway. The woman ran up to her, grabbed the sleeve of her robe, and pulled her around to face her. From there, the woman began to loudly berate her, purging a great deal of anger in one tirade. Althea simply kept her head down, repeatedly muttering, Disculpa, disculpa. It was a term that had popped into her head as a result of the neural conditioning. Althea felt a brief twinge of satisfaction as she realized it was becoming easier to find the words. Still, she hadn't yet developed the skill to understand the litany of abusive terms the woman in the white dress and red cloak hurled in her direction. Finally, the citizen woman grabbed her by the arm and dragged her through the garden and around to the front of the estate. She pushed Althea through the front door, muttered a few more angry terms, and walked through the entryway and into the common area, apparently wanting Althea to follow her. A chill ran through Althea's body as she wondered what possible task the woman wanted her to perform, especially given the circumstances. She walked into the main room and took a minute to observe the scene. It was a birth, that much was clear. Cytherians apparently favored a method of giving birth standing up. The woman in question perched on a couple of clay bricks, and several women supported her by her arms. The procedure, as Althea understood the concept, should be fairly straightforward. They kneel in front and, well, catch. Althea noticed, with some dismay, that there was nobody in that position at the moment. There was also a great deal of attention directed at her. Of course, an occulto would be called in as a midwife, it being a technical and thankless job. And, of course, she was mistaken for the one called. Althea straightened up and slowly approached. She was a doctor, after all. This wasn't her specialty, but she could do this. The woman held on the blocks breathed in short, ragged breaths, Occasionally she screamed or grunted in pain. Althea turned to one of the women holding her, a short, fair-haired citizen, and, after finding the words to ask how long, said, Keo mas. Um dia entaro. The short woman replied, straining with the effort to keep the pregnant woman on her feet. Althea thought about the words for a moment. One entire day. Althea swallowed hard and took a deep breath to calm herself. Something was terribly wrong if she'd been in labor that long. The pregnant woman grunted again with another contraction. Althea noted, with some relief, that it wasn't the same girl she had met the previous evening. This woman had a smaller frame and a darker complexion. She closed her eyes tight and moaned as another contraction hit. Althea touched the side of the woman's face to focus her attention on her. Calma? Respada? Althea took a deep breath and let it out to emphasize the point, and repeated, Calma. Althea tried to maintain eye contact with the woman but something behind her appeared to be drawing her attention every time Althea tried to direct her eyes to meet her own. Whatever it was seemed to terrify her. Whenever the woman's attention was drawn to the space behind Althea, she would start shaking, and her rate of breathing shot up to the point of hyperventilation. Althea waved a hand in front of her face to get the woman's attention and tried to pull the woman's focus back on her. 
She took a couple of deep breaths as she tried to think of the words. Oher paramim, rispara, coma. Then she added, Vose via ficar biem. Althea wasn't sure how she knew how to say, you're going to be fine, except that the more she used the language, the easier it became. Another contraction hit and the woman screamed in pain. The two women on either side of her strained harder to keep her upright on the blocks. You can do this, Althea told herself. It's just labor. It's a natural process. It was covered in medical school. Of course, her education lacked the finer points of how to aid a birth on another planet in the middle of a primitive culture, with no access to medical supplies, and doing all of this in a language she did not fully understand, but she tried to keep her mind off of that. The woman screamed again. Althea knelt down to take a look. Bloody hell, she muttered to herself. The top of the baby's head is visible. Contractions a couple minutes apart. This is happening now, she noted as the woman screamed again. Or it wasn't, Althea thought to herself as she continued to watch. The woman grunted and strained, but the baby never came. It wouldn't be long before both mother and baby would be in serious danger. Althea stood up and took one of the woman's hands and held her for a moment by the wrist. Her heart was racing, easily a hundred beats a minute or more. She was also exhausted to the point, Althea worried, that she no longer had the strength to push the baby out. Okay, está erado, snapped the arenha behind her. Althea slowly turned to see the Scytherian ruler glaring at her. Althea searched her brain, trying to come up with a way to describe what she saw. At the same time, she tried to remember her training to figure out what could be causing the woman to seize and tense up at such a crucial point in labor. The pregnant woman screamed, and Althea returned her attention back to her. Her breath came in short bursts, and her entire weight, at this point, was supported by the two other women of the house on either side. If they released her, she'd likely collapse. At the same time, the woman's eyes seemed to focus on something in the distance. Something more horrible than even her own death or the death of her infant. Althea's mind flashed back to the pregnant woman at the fountain. Her words were still stuck in her mind. They are going to take my baby. Althea spun around to see the Arain Ha. The Scytherian ruler glared back. Biem, isio esta demorando muto. She barked and continued to rant at her until Althea cut her off. Tins de sar. The words left her mouth almost before Althea had thought about them, a reflex more than anything else. The Arenha's face hardened in fury. She had obviously not been told that she had to leave very many places, least of all by the lower occulto class. Okay, vosa dice? The Reinha hissed. The Reinha asked, what did you say, in a tone that indicated that Althea just challenged the power of a person who considered herself omnipotent. Althea bowed her head, expecting to be ejected from the house, if not exposed for who she really was, or worse. The Scytherian women began speaking among themselves in frantic tones, all the while the Reinha's eyes seemed to be burning a hole in Althea's head. Basta, spat Isabel. The room fell silent, except for the woman's panting and straining under the pain of another contraction. The Arenha barked an order to her attendants, and then to the ladies of the house, who only bowed their heads. After that, the ruler spun around and breezed out of the room. Althea breathed a sigh, but it was short-lived, as she knelt down again. The two women barked orders at her, to which Althea could only reply, Sim, Sim. Hopefully that was the correct response. Althea glanced up and, once again, instructed the woman to relax and push. Calma. Impure quando io diego. 
The woman slowed her rapid breathing and nodded. The woman cried out, pushed, and the baby's head emerged. Althea cradled the baby's head and called, Mias umimparo? One more push. The woman screamed as the shoulders came out, and the rest of the baby with it. Althea stood, cradling the newborn boy, and the mother fell backwards into the arms of the other women, completely exhausted. A couple of occulta women rushed to help. They used primitive metal clamps and a knife to cut the cord, and another came with blankets to wrap the baby. Althea turned around to examine the infant as the others helped her through the final stage of labor. The child squirmed and cried in her arms as she searched for any sign of injury brought on by the difficult birth. Althea breathed a sigh of relief when she could find nothing. He was, for all Althea could see, a perfectly healthy baby. The citizen women carried the now limp mother to another room in the house, while Althea remained for a few moments, letting relief wash over her as she held the screaming baby. She waited for the citizen woman to emerge, taking that as a sign that the mother was resting and ready to see her child. She'd barely taken a couple of steps when the Orenha, her voice still hard as obsidian, said, Medio o bebe. Althea turned to see the Scytherian queen standing in the room with her entourage, again looking impatient. This time, she noted, a couple of her soldiers joined her. Althea turned to look at the other women of the house standing by the door. Their faces were mostly neutral, with just a hint of sadness. Althea turned back to the Arenha, who repeated, Medio o bebe, agora! It was clear what was expected of her. Althea crossed the room and, against every impulse in her mind, handed the crying child over to the Arenha. Without a word, she turned and left with her people. The women of the house went back to the room, presumably to care for the mother. Other occulta women arrived to remove the blocks and clean up the mess. Althea looked around and ran to the kitchen where she found a basin of water and some crude handmade soap. She washed her hands and arms and tried to calm herself down. That was it. That's what the women of this city were afraid of. But she wasn't sure why yet. The only thing Althea knew for sure was that the Arain Ha inspired the kind of fear that went beyond the existential. It was the kind that eroded the soul and left a person mad with desperation. Althea splashed some water on her face and dried her hands on a linen cloth hanging nearby before she stepped back into the common area. The citizen women were still busy with the mother, and the occulto paid her no attention. Althea adjusted her hood to make sure that none of her hair peeked out and left through the front door to follow the Arenha. The global wars decimated entire cities. For a while, the purpose of the global economy was to destroy itself, explained Isra. Celia nodded. So people on Earth lost their taste for war. Isra looked around as she thought about her answer. Celia had led her to the outskirts of the city, where tightly packed white stone buildings gave way to olive groves, fruit orchards, and golden fields where wheat, barley, or flax waved in the breeze. They passed the occasional mill or farmhouse, surrounded by a colto going about their work, planting, harvesting, or processing the agricultural products. They walked along a cobbled street lined with trees. This could have been any charming rural area on earth, except for the band of four soldiers that marched in lockstep behind them. The people of earth still fight, said Isra eventually. Only now they primarily fight by proxy. Proxy said Celia, as if judging the sound by how her mouth moved to make it. I do not understand that word. You will rarely find Corporation Marines fighting Ministry Coalition forces on a field of battle. The war is fought through influence, economic dominance, covert operations, and anything besides actual warfare. Celia walked in silence for a few meters as she thought about this. And Cytheria, 
Are we a part of this proxy? Do you wish us to fight this corporation? Isra tried to find the right words that might help explain the complex political landscape on Earth. No, it is about influence, ideas. By sharing what we believe with you and your people, we hope to create a place where the corporation cannot successfully operate. And what do you believe? asked Celia. The same uneasy feeling made itself known once again. It started at the back of Isra's neck and spread over her skin like a series of electric impulses. She swallowed, trying to hide her feelings from Celia. Freedom. Self-determination. We at the Ministry believe that all people should be free to live, prosper, and rule as they see fit, in a way that benefits them. To be able to live off the richness of their lands and the ingenuity of their people. And this corporation, they do not believe in this, Celia asked. The smell was the first clue that she was walking to something horrific. It started as a light wood smoke aroma, like a bonfire or a campfire, along with something else she couldn't identify. It was slight at first, but as Celia led the way off the paved road and down a narrow path through the trees, it became so intense that Isra had to cover her nose and mouth to avoid being sick. It smelled like rotten meat, melted plastic, and burnt hair. It smelled like death and decay. Again, Isra buried her emotions and tried to keep her face neutral. If the corporation comes here, they will force you to work for them. Your fields, your mines, and your people will become their property. Only a few Cytherians will ever see the benefit. Your society will become slaves. I see. So we may have to fight them. It was subtle, but Isra couldn't help notice the slight air of happiness in that statement, like a general who noticed the battle turning in their favor. I suppose that is a possibility, Isra conceded. A few meters down the path, Isra saw the source of the smell. Fruit orchards surrounded them now, but up ahead in the distance, the rows of trees ended. She also noticed light clouds of smoke rising into the sky. Where are you taking me? asked Isra, trying to keep the suspicion out of her voice. You ask why we fight, why we devote our lives to military training. This is why, said Celia with sharpness in her voice. A few minutes later, the lush backdrop of trees and fields changed into smoke, ash, and smoldering ruins. Rows of trees were replaced with blackened twigs sticking out of the scorched earth and, further down the path, the burned-out remains of a stone building. The white, chalky rock, the standard building material of the city, was scorched black and cracked with the heat. Whatever disaster struck caused the roof to cave in and the front wall to collapse back into the structure. Dead bodies laid in dark pools of blood, cut, mangled, and eviscerated. Two occulto stood in the middle of that grim tableau, holding a nearly naked corpse by the wrists and ankles. They both glanced at Isra and the emissary as they heaved the body onto a smoldering fire and went to collect another. It happened not long before you landed. This farm lost everything, said Celia. Isra couldn't speak at first, as her mind sorted through what she saw. Finally, she said, This... The Corsario did this? Celia stopped walking and looked down at a body that was clearly not Cytherian. It lacked the standard clothing, or any clothing except some tattered rags around the waist. It was a man, but thin, bordering on emaciated. White mud and dirt caked every inch of exposed flesh, and his face was twisted by whatever cry of pain, anger, or fear that had been his last sound. Yes, Corsario, said Celia. 
Savage men who steal anything they can carry and burn whatever they can't. They rape or kill anyone who tries to stop them. Where do they come from? Isra asked, willing herself not to be sick at the sight of so much death. The lands beyond the Modesto's wall, further down the mountain where it is too hot to grow food. They lie in wait out there and live off whatever they can steal from our city. The corpse held some kind of weapon, like a rudimentary musket or hand cannon, about as long as his arm. The barrel was a simple black cylinder attached to the end of a wooden lance. There was a serrated blade on the other end of the barrel over the mouth, which extended an extra 30 centimeters. The weapon looked to Isra like a combination of two archaic proto-firearms from Earth's ancient past. Celia picked up the weapon. They fight with this, Lanza Fogo. Fire erupts from the front, and shards of metal kill, blind, or maim anything in their path. The weapon allows them to hit very hard and very fast. The damage you see around you happened before our soldiers could respond and repel them over the wall. This is the threat we must live with. Our commitment to military might keeps us from descending into chaos. Celia held out the weapon for Isra. It was top-heavy and looked about as likely to blow up in the hand of the person holding it as to kill someone standing in front of it. What made the Corsario attack this place? said Isra, looking around. This farmer was old and weak. Corsario sense when a man is no longer able to protect the land charged to him. It is for the best. This farm will be rebuilt, and a new soldier who wishes to retire will oversee it. What happened to the old man? He did the honorable thing. Isra watched Nicolto toss another victim of the battle onto the bonfire. She did not have to work too hard to imagine what the honorable thing entailed in this culture. This is why Scytherians train, continued Celia. They train because they have to. If every man, woman, and child does not commit themselves fully to the city, everyone will perish. Every time the Corsarios strike, we lose something valuable. Can you imagine what would happen if we did not have the military strength that we have now? Isra closed her eyes. She feared that the horrible sights and smells would remain with her for a while. How often does this happen? Cassario sense weakness. They sense when Scytherians neglect their duty. They sense rot and decay of society. When they see an opportunity, they attack. Celia turned back to the road. We should go. Arenha Isabel wishes for you to attend a consolho meeting at the Sala. Isra examined the Lanza Fogo in her hand again. It was a gun, equally dangerous to its user as to their opponent, and probably as accurate as a drunk with a slingshot but still a gun on a planet where technology regressed back to Bronze Age weapons. Where do they get these? asked Isra. Pardon? said Celia, turning around. Cassario, you say they live far away from the city. They would need knowledge of metallurgy, chemistry. The gunpowder alone would take an entire city to obtain, purify, and mix the ingredients. How do they do it? Just how do they survive? said the emissary, as if the answer was obvious. And they devote their lives to it. Much as we must do in order to protect it. Now, please, Isabel does not tolerate tardiness. Isra dropped the weapon and glanced back at the occulto. She watched as they tossed another wiry body onto the bonfire. Joining the uneasiness creeping around the edge of her mind was a sharp pinprick at the base of her neck. She knew the feeling well and relied upon it in her dealings with the ministry. It was a sharp, raw, undeniable feeling like a sore spot on the top of her mouth that she might try to ignore but couldn't. It was the feeling that everything she witnessed was a terrible lie.
You have been listening to The Ruins of Empire, Templum Veneris, the second book of The Ruins of Empire Project. The Ruins of Empire podcast was written by Jeremy L. Jones and produced by Sean Vincent. Cover art was by Nick Martin. Music was Predator by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Licensed under Creative Commons 3.0 license. City of Geeks. Independent new media produced in Idaho.